We recorded the panel discussion at ViVi Collective on Friday, March 6, 2020. I got to sit down with Wasfia Nazarene, uh, their keynote speaker after the panel discussion, but wanted to put this at the front. We did not record her keynote speech, but you can find most of her talks online. A little bit about Wasfia. She is the only woman to hold the simultaneous titles of National Geographic Explorer and Adventurer. Although she is known for being the first Bangladesh and Bengali in the world to climb the seven summits or the highest mountains of every continent, her passion has always been driven by causes close to her heart. She has won numerous national and global awards for her activism and commitment to empowering women through the field of, of adventure. She was named by Outside Magazine as one of 40 women in the last 40 years who have advanced and challenged the outdoor world through their leadership, innovation, and athletic feats, and by Men's Journal as one of the 25 most adventurous women of the past 25 years. She is the founder of Oslo Foundation, which empowers marginalized girls from Bangladesh through the outdoors. You can find out more about her on her website at wasfianazarene.com. Listen in as we talk more about sacred mountains. Aloha my name is Nohea Lani Frizzell and I am the founder of Native Stories. Uh, we are here at Vivai Collective for the Elevating Women panel discussion. Um, so that just happened and now I have the opportunity to interview Wasfia Nazarene. Uh, Wasfia, nice to meet you. Um, can you uh, give us a quick explanation of the cultures that make up Bangladesh Bengali. Aloha, nice to meet you too and honored to be speaking to you today. Um, so Bangladesh is the country, Bengali is my ethnicity. Bengali is also the language that we speak and this is the only language um, so when people follow International Mother Tongue Day that was based from the movement to we were the first I believe who had a whole war to protect our language and uh, that's how International Mother Tongue Day came into existence. So we're very proud of that uh, language and culture and um, yeah and Bangladesh is the independent nation that that came into birth in 1971 so that was my parents generation after a nine months long liberation war when we got our freedom from what is now Pakistan. So we were back then East Pakistan. And so I'm kind of first generation Bangladeshi, you could say. And I grew up in an environment of a lot of freedom fighters because every other person around was a freedom. They were part of that war. Um, yeah, and but Bangladesh is also not made of just Bengali people. It's a secular country and we have our indigenous uh, people who are known as Chakmas, Garos, and there's um, they, they're native uh, um, of our land from in the southeast part, and they're mostly Tibeto-Burman uh, ethnicity. So Bangladesh is the country of, you know, people tend to think it's mostly Bengali people, but it, that's the majority, but we also have our indigenous tribes. Okay, okay. 
That's awesome. That's really good to know. As I was Wikipediaing, I didn't really understand that. So, <laughs> um, so I watched the, your award-winning uh, short film named Wasfia. That was really cool. I really loved it. Um, and in our culture, and I want to just jump into the the mountains, summiting, yeah. uh, and I, I've, I've never thought about hiking that much <laughs> for more than you know ten hours. So. Um, in the summits, in the realms of Akua um, or the gods, uh, because you are closer to heaven, um, we in Hawaii, Mauna Kea is a sacred place, not right. just because it's a realm of Akua, but you had also mentioned that that's where the water comes from. It snows, water comes down the mountains, and it feeds the people around them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want you to kind of explain... Um, the practices and the gods that you had to ask permission to and that protocol. Yeah. So from a Western perspective, when people talk about mountaineering, what I've heard is mostly, you know, a very macho, let's go out and conquering. And that has always, like when I first came into contact with that kind of idea, it, was, it really, really baffled me because in our practice and in our culture, not just like not I'm not talking from a Bangladeshi perspective but Nepali like the Himalayan perspective the Himalayas are the abode of gods and goddesses the highest mountains on the planet and there are many mountains that are sacred and you know they not not only sacred but their the entire range is known as the abode of gods and goddesses right so Everest for example the highest mountain in the world that's a colonized name most people know Everest as Everest and Everest is actually in between the country of Nepal and Tibet. The summit literally goes across those two countries. So on both sides of the mountain, so the Nepali people call Everest Sagarmatha, which means mother of all oceans. Uh, and the Tibetan people on the other side calls it Chumulungma, mother goddess of the world. So both, as you can see, are feminine aspect, and it goes to show, like the British dude whose last name was Everest, whoever you know, yeah. the pay what patriarchy does, right? But till today, the inhabitants of the land, Tibetans and the Sherpa people, who are also originally from Tibet, Sherpa means coming from the east, from meaning east of Tibet. Um, their culture is all about reverence to the mountains. So like I was showing in my presentation as well, that before we go, we have to, you know, seek the guidance of a Lama or like a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner who comes and does a whole puja or a ritual to and make we make an altar and it's a very safe it's one of the most sacred ex- experiences that I've ever had all over all over the world, right? So we make the altar, we seek and there's a three hundred year old I believe it might be wrong but like 300 year old script that is read out addressing wow. Chomulungma seeking her permission and anyone who's in been in the shadow of Chomulungma knows how powerful she is you know uh, just she just roars all the time and you don't want to make her angry so you seek her permission we actually put in all the gear that we're gonna take to the mountain in the uh, in front of the altar we apologize in advance for stepping on her and making any harm um, and then seek for permission for her doors to open right. her path to open so we, we may make it and also Chumulungma is also the goddess of um, what's the word abundance yes. and um, 
there's a lot of things associated with her but mostly abundance and glory and if you if you pay respect to her she will give you all that so yeah. that's the whole idea and so then if the puja goes well and there's certain omens and symbols associated with the puja and then you know uh, there's barley that's tossed in the air there a whole it's a really long process and then they will tell you the lamas will say hey you know this looks like an opening and certain birds come in all kinds of stuff so and then they give you a date that april 20th or whatever the date may be that is a day for you to start and the permission has been given so um that's when we start climbing and at any point if there are signs on the mountains that is a clear sign that you know uh god is chamulungma and saying go get off yeah. we we are we pray, re- pray reverence to that and come down like in 2015 in one avalanche she took sorry in 14 2014 she took in one avalanche 15 sherpa people yeah. and the sherpa people are very uh observant about that 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 was te- her way of telling and they shut down the mountain but westerners wouldn't follow that and they tried to go across the bodies that were missing on the mountain which is highly disrespectful i also if i have time i want yeah, to yeah. add that the entire everest so called everest region is in native called kumbu region solukumbu solo means river kumbu means mountain so lukumbu is the area where the river uh, the water and the mountains come together and as you enter that area uh you have to seek permission and also it says that once you enter the area there's no killing no lying no um sexual misconduct any kind of negative you know yeah. uh and that no you know stealing other people no backbiting i've often oh. been inside fights in even though these are like plastered everywhere like you'll see the locals praying all the time while they're in there because it's an abode of you know gods right and so I've been there where people are using f words, people are shouting and that's never, you know, taken right. properly. And I've been very privileged to see many mountain sites around the world and not everyone has that kind of reverence towards mountain, but there are special places where traditionally this is still practiced and I just feel like it's wherever we go we have to pay respect to that. So do most of the westerners not perform this practice? Uh they take part in the okay. you know the commercial expeditions sometimes hold these pujas but it's done more as a I mean it can be a very powerful experience because I have seen you know people regardless of faith or being atheist or whatever they do come to and they're all doing it together yeah. okay. but then they as soon as they get out of it they're like let's go conquer that mountain you know like <laughs> no the <laughs> they didn't get the message so obviously it's not part of their spirituality yeah. right and so first of all you can never conquer a mountain yeah. you only surrender to it so i think it's very hard for them to if you've been conditioned yeah. and habituated in that kind of Yeah. Yeah, so I I just want to mention that we're at Vai Vai Collective and Vai is water uh-huh. and Vai Vai is abundance. Oh wow. So if you yeah, just consider that in the water, right? That comes down the mountains, right. but when you have Vai Vai, the abundance, the wealth of that and in society you're measured by the you know, not how much money you have, but how much water you have because right. that then determines how how healthy the people are. Right. 
Yeah, so it's, uh, it's obviously very, yeah. the same. <laughs> yeah, and also like just Chomulungma is considered by scientists as the third pole because it's the biggest reservoir. The Himalayas right now is the biggest reservoir of water after South Pole and North Pole. Yeah, so it's and it's the you know the home base the of all the rivers that stream throughout Asia. So you're damaging that area, whether spiritually or physically. It's it's affecting everyone who lives in the downstreams. Yeah, downstream. Yeah, the, all the all the rubbish uh, that comes down. Yeah, is in the water, right. and the, who's who's getting that is the people. Yeah, yeah. That's why sustainability or, or health of the earth and and how you practice um, taking care of it is important. So yeah. So we want to support your mission. Um, how can people get a hold of you guys? Uh, I'm going through actually a lot of transition right now. Um, so best would be m- either my website, which is wasfianazreen.com, and I will spell that W-A-S-F-I-A-N-A-Z-R-E-E-N.com, or my Instagram with the same handle at wasfianazreen. We cut in and as HTA introduces the notable Wahine panelists on Elevating Women. Um, so first we have Lila Abuaf, who is a senior at Singapore American School, the founder of Integrate Do Not Isolate, creating a platform through various social media f- forums to build awareness and coalition. Sorry, I always get this word messed up. Coalition. Yeah. <laughs> um, for the cause of empowering girls and advocating for the inc. Sorry, inclusivity, inclusivity of less privileged kids, especially within the Egyptian society. Layla has also um, done NGOs in her home country of Egypt, uh, serving the forgotten and unprivileged youth. She will be headed to Tufts University this fall. Uh, next, we have. Puanani Burgess, a Zen Buddhist priest, author, poet, and comedian mediator from Waianae, Oahu, who has helped develop about 12 organizations, inclu- including Hale Na'o Pono, or Waianae Coast Community Mental Health Center. Puanani is a process designer and facilitator of building the deve- beloved community where it brings people face-to-face for ceremony, storytelling, healing, circles of trust and respect. We also have Dr. Christina Kishimoto, the Hawaii um, Department of Education superintendent, and she is here to um, talk about the goals of the DOE slash BOE strategic plan. She has made it her mission to focus on three high-impact strategies, school design, student voices, and teacher collaboration. And we also have our moderator, Joelle Cabasa, um, the acting president of Friends of HTA and digital marketing director of Hawaii Business Magazine. If you could please give them a round of applause. Thank you, Alexis. Um, We are so honored here today to to do this and to be with these amazing women. Um, Let's hear it again. Let's give these mano wahine a round of applause. So we're here today um, again to honor Wasviev. Thank you for coming. Um, And then to just create an open dialogue um, about women's empowerment um, to help the young men and women who will um, become the leaders and the change makers of Hawaii.
So let's get started um, with a little background from all of our panelists. Um, were you brought up in, in an environment that was empowering as a girl? Um, or was it more rigid or arranged around more traditional gender roles and behavior? Um, Pua Nani, can we start with you? The answer is yes and no. Oh, can you turn on the, can you turn on the microphone? But. Technology challenged. Does this work? Yeah. Okay. Closer to the mouth. Well, my answer is yes and no. I grew up in a Japanese and a Hawaiian family, and in both families, the women ruled. It was more obvious in my mother's family. Both my mother was a was a civic leader and a, an entrepreneur, and her mother was a healer and a priest in her own right. And my Japanese grandmother was a tiny Japanese bacha, but she managed the family. So, you know, I, I grew up in a family in which we understood what our roles were going to be, and it was probably going to be my role is to be a wife and a mother. And yet I had other examples as well. So, yes and no. Okay, I'll try my best. Christina? So I would have to say the same. It's a yes and no. Uh, definitely in the house, uh, we uh, had a very strong mother growing up and a strong grandmother who um, had life experiences of uh, making it uh, through some tough uh, times. And so uh, they pushed us as the children uh, to do what we needed to do to be successful, to be engaged, uh, to pursue our passions. And so at home, yes, it was about encouraging us, uh, myself and my two sisters, uh, to, to pursue whatever we wanted to pursue. But what's interesting is if you then come to the church we grew up in, uh, we often don't talk about women disempowerment and how churches are run. Uh, we talk about it in schools or in our communities, in our homes. But churches also um, work in very gender-segregated ways. And, and so in the church uh, we grew up in, and uh, the, we had a, a pastor who uh, preached and talked a lot about uh, the role of women to serve men. Uh, and my, my mother ended up becoming actually a deacon in the church and uh, really good friends of our pastor, uh, but they were constantly bucking heads around those gender roles. And so I grew up listening to those conversations. That was extremely empowering. Uh, well, I think people saw, but I was mostly on survival mode during growing up, so I didn't really benefit from either side. My father's side was a little more tolerant, but every single of my mom's sister were married off when they were teenagers. So, it, and that also, you know, later when I look back at their struggles, my mom was married off when she was 16. My, most of my aunts, 13, 14, some before they even got their period. So I, you know, when I look back, they were just perpetuating that same culture on us, you know, because they didn't know better. So recently when I connected with my mother and my aunt on a heart-to-heart -heart level, this is the first time, and I'm 38 now, uh, almost, he, it was the first time they cried and said, 
you know, you are making up for the entire generation <laughs> of us who couldn't live our dreams. And yeah, so yeah, so they didn't have that freedom. Hansi Pua just can't believe that you're 38. She's, she can't believe that you're 38. No, I have to. <laughs> you are so amazing to me. Aww, I, I, think. <laughs> I, I could never have dreamt what you dreamt. But seeing that you were able to do it, as outrageous as it is, I find that very encouraging. Thank you. It's, it's a long way and it's a hard climb still. Boy. <laughs> Thank you. 38, folks. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Layla, for you, um, what was education, what was growing up like in Egypt? I mean, it's so radically different, maybe, from, from here, I mean, I would expect. Um, yeah, so I'd have to agree. Um, in terms of family, my parents, my grandparents have always been super supportive of what I'm passionate about and have never really kind of told me that I had to do a certain thing or be a certain way, but... Um, having lived abroad for 12 years out of the 18 years of my life um, has kind of given me culture shock every time I go back. Um, my mom's always telling me, um, you can't wear this. And I'm like, but I wear this every day. Like, what are, you, what are you saying? And then she's like, no, but, you know, here in Egypt, like, it's not like that. And I'm, and I'm really failing to understand. I continue to fail to understand why that it is the way it is. And um, so I think that in terms of my family and education, I found that international schooling has always supported me in whatever career I want to go into, whatever type of education I need. But even simple things like dress code and just simple things like that have always been enforced a little bit harsher on girls or, you know, the girls never get a say in it. It's always about, well, oh, the guy's distracted or the men's going to be distracted by you. And well, it's kind of like, well, what do you say to that? So, yeah, I guess I've had kind of both shocking experiences. Great. Um, I wanted to start out with Pua Nani. Uh, you started out as a young, vivacious uh, protester and activist in your youth. Um, from Waianae to Ko'olina, Ko'olave, uh, you had a hand in some pretty controversial issues, I'd say. But as a, as a woman, did you experience challenges uh, or resistance in that arena? Can I just back up a little bit to answer the question, how come I got to do those things? Sure. In spite of it not being part of the plan. Right. So I got married when I was 20. And about a month or two after I got married to this incredible person, he said to me, I have something I have to talk to you about. And so I thought, oh, no. What's this about? So he said, you know, I'm going to do the work I meant to do and live the life I meant to live. So that means you have to figure out what is the work you're meant to do and the life you're meant to live because your job is not my wife. The job is not my wife. That turned the corner for me. So every left turn I ever wanted to take, everyone, no matter how crazy it was, he never said no. And so, you know, that kind of support and that is not accidental, but it is like angelic. So I think, you know, who I've become has a lot to do with being told that early on before I could form bad habits. 
thinking I was only limited to doing this. So, thank you. Um, let's move on to, um, I guess, Waspia, because you had mentioned uh, instead of the challenges that you face, um, I guess, in similar to um, Antipua, where you, um, I guess, you go up and you have these controversial um, things in your life, with these challenges in your life, um, where did you draw inspiration from um, and the strength to do what, what you did? I've been writing my memoir in recent times, so a lot of the memories have come back, like where I started and what motivated me. But as far as I remember, like being in that household, seeing the trouble that my parents had, I think just as a child, I had this instinct that I need to run away from this house, regardless, before the divorce even took place. And I witnessed a lot, and I didn't want to, even as a child, I knew I had to set myself free. And at that time, all I knew was like, oh, I just need education. My was my society was so like my family household. Like my aunt, till today, is the last person to serve everyone food, and she eats by herself. This is in 2020. So I realized I saw that, and then I just you know had a really strong calling for self-actualization. And like I showed it by 2021. I was, you know, very grounded in Buddhism and this whole path and that supported me, that community of, you know, having, giving you the power to your mind and, um, yeah, so I think all that work and I still have a long way to go, I think that's what keeps, gives me grounding and strength. And Leila, um, what about you? Let's uh, hear some inspiration. Um, what, who are the women in your life that inspire you and uh, what kind of impact did they make on you? Um, I think the women in my life that have significantly impacted me have definitely got to be my mom sitting right there and my two grandmothers who aren't here. Um, I think they've just always kind of taught me to push boundaries and you know do whatever I want and kind of in a world that in a society that was kind of telling me otherwise they were always telling me you know what no follow your passion they never told me um and just when i look at my grandmother um she was pulled out of school at 17 to get married um forced by her mother to drop school and get married and um she had my mother and her brother at a very young age and she wasn't allowed to finish her schooling and um just her inspiration came back to me when, at the age of 23, she went back to sophomore year, 10th grade, and, you know, she finished up, and she went to college, and she got her master's, and she ended up working in a bank till she became the head of the board in Egypt, which was, like, unheard of. You never hear that a woman is going to be the head of the board at somewhere like a bank. Like, that was just crazy to me. It was so crazy to me. She was so determined, and she instilled that in my mom, and my mom further instilled that into me and I just think that honestly all the values that they've been passing down to me and every experience that they've shared to me and just everything they've taught me has really been the reason why I want to get why I've gotten into the work that I've gotten into and why I've been so inspired to really help the people that I do. So clearly you guys are all very successful uh, albeit young some of you uh, young women um making an impact in very different ways. Um, were there moments that really tested you or challenged you and made you maybe think, um, am, I, am I doing the right thing? Am I on the right track? Um, Christina, why don't you take that one? 
So I don't know that I ever questioned where, whether I was on the right track, but uh, I have moments every day that challenge me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it's the, um, the, the, the role that women have leading organizations, being a, uh, a, a superintendent of education and walking into rooms today that's still um, where I'm the only woman um, going into a, a decision-making room and you look around and say, where are the other women and why aren't they invited to the table? Um, that still happens today. Um, and I shared the story earlier today and I'm looking around the room to see if the person I'm talking about is here um, <laughs> with another group of women that I met with this morning at 8 o'clock. We had an International Women's Day celebration. Uh, and, uh, and I was in a meeting earlier this week uh, where... Uh, you know, I was with people I know, and, and, and we know each other from, from the work, and, but, but I had uh, a man try to keep cutting me off, uh, and the way he was cutting me off is he kept talking louder and louder, so I then talked very loud and said, obviously I have to talk loud in order to keep you from interrupting me, and I'm going to keep, you know, talking this loud. Okay, so it was an interesting scene, right? It, w it got really quiet in the room, and it got really tense for a second. We all know each other, uh, but I think it's that, that um, environment that women still walk into today um, uh, where there are assumptions about how women have to lead, right? Or there are, uh, there are assumptions about women's style of leadership that we're supposed to enter a room with a certain humility and quietness. And, uh, you know, and uh, one of the great questions that was asked at a, at a conversation this morning was, should I um, uh, sit back when, when um, no one will listen unless I kind of... Uh, lead a certain way, or should I just force my way into these spaces and say, no, I'm going to lead as a woman with my own style? And, and that question came from a, a, a woman here in, in Hawaii who's doing great work, and it's interesting we're still having those conversations today about who has voice at the table and what happens when, when you're the only woman at the table or you're one of, of a few women. Uh, and so one of the questions I always have is, where are the other women in the room? And what's, what's your style? <laughs> we can all assume she likes to lean forward. So when uh, I left that meeting earlier this week, uh, the person that was facilitating the meeting said, because I left before everyone, I had to run to another meeting, said, uh, don't be shy about leaving, you know. And, but he was referring to me, and I said, well, I, that's not my style. Certainly you know that. Uh, but I think that if a man had gotten up, a man wouldn't have been told, don't be shy about leaving. Um, and I think it's those little comments that, um, that we have to be very cognizant of and help our young women who are going into these new leadership roles to think about their style of leadership and to know how to manage those situations so that they don't lose their voice in the room as they're trying to lead through that. And those are sometimes very tricky situations. Antipua, do you have anything to add? Were you on the right track? Did you know? Did you, did you know you were on the right track? Uh, that's, a, that's a really tough question to answer. So how would I answer that? Um, often being in a, in a situation where men are used to, to talking, I've never had a problem. I know the problem exists, but I have never faced that problem. And it's not because I'm assertive, 
but I actually know the value that I bring to any circle I'm part of. And whether they purposely make a space for me or not, if I see a space and I have something to add, I will add it. And if it's not there, I don't force it. So um, I think, you know, something happened when I became Antipua. You walk into a room differently as Antipua than just as Pua Nani Burgess. So Antipua carries with it a kind of dignity and an ability to be able to port forth the ideas that are needed to be said, whoever doesn't like it, it doesn't matter. So I think there's something in occupying the space that really belongs to you and doing it with your full spirit. Just like climbing those mountains, you have to be <laughs> fully there to do it. So I just want to say one more thing. I think, I think I think I've always been a great follower. I, I've always been a great follower, and because I could follow well, I have been invited to so many spaces to be a part of something bigger than I can ever be by myself. And because I, I really appreciate being part of, it allows me to learn and see things that ordinarily, you know, if I just took a particular stance, it would never be offered to me. Like being here, being here, being here. Uh, so I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so Waspia, you're quite the accomplished adventurer. That's, that's an understatement of the year, I think, now that we've all seen what uh, mountain climbing can do to you. Um, as most of you know, she was the first Bangladeshi and Bengali woman to ever climb the Seven Summits. Um, person. Person. To, uh, person? Yes. Okay, you're better than women and men. Um, and now you're on a mission to empower girls and women um, through the field of exploration and education. Is that right? Um, so we'll get to your foundation in a minute, but um, talk about that for a second. Uh, what does that mean to empower through exploration and education? Before getting to that, if I may add a little more to what Antipua was also saying, that I think it's important to remember that you know when we're talking about setbacks, because this is related to my work, is... Um, in my life personally, I've been shunned by more women than men. So I think we tend to forget that patriarchy is a system where women can be as much a part as men are in the fight for equal rights. And I've been told, not just in Bangladesh, in Hollywood, by female executives, that this TV show or certain things won't sell because it doesn't cater to the white male audience. And that project was not, you know, the entire thing was shunned. And then right now, the executive producer for my TV show is a male who's very balanced. So I think ultimately it's about finding that balance between masculine and femininity that resides in all genders across. So that is my mission with these girls and the boys who's joined is to help them find that inner balance in whatever mountain they want to climb in life. And that... 
I think there's a fundamental flaw in our education system across the world where children these days aren't inspired to look inside. In not, maybe not in Hawaii, but in where I come from. We are not taught moral values anymore. We, we are taught to you know, grow externally and set all these goals, learn physics, but that's why there's a whole vacuum in you know, these children who, and also with technology coming in, like with social media, the, the, you know, they grow up watching role models who aren't necessarily, shouldn't be, like we didn't grow up with that. We didn't grow up in phone, like I didn't have a smartphone growing up. And so um, one way I found it was helpful for me was going back to nature, which is to me is the biggest teacher. It's a, it holds a mirror to my learn, you know, to what I'm going through. So all these courses, kind of like what uh, people may know of Outward Bound here uh, or Knowles. So it's that, you know, some of the uh, instructors there actually helped me put in this course, but it also has the mindfulness part of it or meditation, however, in Bangladesh I can't call it meditation, mindfulness. So it's like combined with uh, wilderness studies, but at the same time of continuing education. So, uh, but also from a place of surrender, not going out to conquer Mother Nature, if that makes sense. What, that was, was that the question? Like what does exploration <laughs> Yeah, no, I think, you, I think you nailed it. Um, I mean, you founded the Oso Foundation, which teaches um, underprivileged youth or the people from or the kids from Bangladesh how to be mindful and then this year we we're it's a very small segment but it started in uh, Nepal and the whole idea is in hopefully with how we proceed uh, we want to have branches all over South Asia because women and girls in South Asia have very similar issues you know and there is no that there's not many schools who are doing this kind of education of experiential learning in in the outdoors. Right, and I think going back to that that idea, the mindfulness idea, I mean, we've all talked about it, uh, maybe in our social circles, or um, we've, we've downloaded those meditation apps. You know, we try to center ourselves, go out and have a lot of hikes, um, and get that kind of um, stuff back into our lives, but... I mean, for maybe for the rest of you, like how, how do, you, do you folks practice mindfulness and you know, how maybe some, some sort of advice for the audience um, and maybe they can take some from your experiences of how, how to, I guess, get back there. Well, one of the things I definitely uh, enjoy uh, holding sacred is no matter how busy the day is, is getting home and having uh, dinner with family, right? So uh, put the phone away. Um, my husband's in the room and I asked him the other day if dinner was over because he went and reached for his phone uh, and you know but just having that time with family uh, you know remembering you know, my, my daughter's in college making sure I, I stop I call her my parents are um, on the east coast stopping and remembering everyone is just most important to us because at the end of the day it's not it's not the, the the work right the work is really important i'm very passionate about it and i don't want my passion to overshadow the fact that i have people that are really important in my life uh, which is why i also make sure that it, with with my work that i'm focused on the people which is why i'm so uh, uh, passionate about student voice and the time that teachers have to work with one another. It's, it's the people that make uh, uh, the work so important. And uh, just taking the time to get up a little earlier and go out for a run, uh, do some yoga, uh, take some time, and also say no to invitations. Uh, we can't be everything to everyone, right? <laughs> 
last last year I met Auntie in uh, at a house summit and goodness within two minutes she had all of us crying and uh, and we were just in this in, in this beautiful space and just talking and spending time with each other and appreciating self and each other and the place that we were in. Uh, and, and we have to do that, and we have to do that often to keep that balance. I agree. Saying no is actually a really beneficial thing. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing once you get to realize the power that's in that statement. Um, Leila, for, for you, I mean, you're a Gen Zer. You, you grew up with screens and, and with the apps and all of the, the, that stuff. So talk to, talk to us a little bit for the, the kids that are that age in this room. Um, to be completely honest with you, the last four years of high school have been the most stressful years of my life. And I think had I practiced any form of mindfulness, they would have become a lot easier. I think, to me, mindfulness is kind of just sitting with yourself and just taking time to really reflect and just kind of saying like okay like like I would I wish I would have you know had times where I would sit have sat by myself and just thought like okay well what was good about my day what did I enjoy today just kind of reflect on what makes me happy in the times that I've been the most stressed or you know the times where I felt everything was going wrong I feel like I just sometimes need to reconnect with myself and remember kind of who I am and what I'm doing and remember myself and just remember that my phone is not everything, my social life is not everything, my grades are not everything, you know, who I am and my well-being and my health and my mental state, that's everything, that's everything to me and, you know, looking back on these four years, um, my phone has been such... I love my phone, but I have to say it's one of the worst creations because I just can't put it down. And I just, I honestly, for anyone in this room, I'm telling you, if you have high school left, if college is next for you, if you are in middle school, take that time, put down your phone, do things without your phone. It's really not worth it. My dad was telling me about a study that on, that was done on like mice or rats that told you when you do your when you're using your phone and doing something else it makes you like take three times the time it would take you if you just weren't using it so I just take I think like taking that time to kind of just be by yourself and like reflect on it and just kind of be there and really be present with yourself like that's the most important thing and if you don't do that you're not gonna get through it without you know a lot of mental breakdowns <laughs> Um, so let's changing course, changing track a little bit. Something else that I'd like to explore tonight is equity. Um, so for Superintendent Kishimoto, um, you're operating at a 50,000 foot view, I mean, so to speak, with your work with the DOE and kind of means that you're painting on a super large canvas. Um, so how, did, how do you develop um, equity and education from that point of view and from that perspective? So I, um, just as background, I grew up in the South Bronx in New York City um, in the 1970s was in schools and, and if you know anything about, if you think about just that time period, of that decade of the 70s and New York City had a very decimated school system in terms of uh, its budget and so, you know, we shared butt cheeks on chairs. We didn't have materials. I got my math instruction from an English certified uh, teacher and we we studied together. We learned resilience together, 
And it's from, from really that experience I developed this uh, passion for equity through public education, that equity of access. Um, I looked around and, and, and couldn't understand why as a poor kid in the South Bronx, my school wasn't giving me the same thing that uh, more affluent um, public schools were providing in other communities. And so I became very passionate about the fact that you shouldn't have to leave your community to have a great school in your neighborhood. So equity is extremely important to me in terms of empowering our young people uh, to, to have that access. And that equity happens by having an unequal distribution of resources. You've got to have greater resources to those disempowered individuals for whatever reason. Our homeless students, our students who are coming in needing to do language development, our students who are coming from high poverty who don't have access to technology at home, uh, to our students who just are struggling with trauma at home. Uh, Those young people, we can't say go into this equal distribution of resources and do the best you can because they're not going to even have access. And so that's, that's how I'm leading the DOE is that we have to have equity of access for all of our students. They deserve a quality school no matter where they live. And is there a program that comes to mind? I guess like when you're doing this implementation of these large programs, is there one that comes to mind um, that really moves that along and, and moves the needle on that? So we're doing a lot of work around um, uh, exposure and access to computer science uh, and looking at who, who's accessing the, those type of courses as the kids get older, making sure that our young ladies are in those classrooms, making sure uh, that we have um, all of our students getting that exposure because oftentimes we'll say, well, these kids weren't interested in computer science, but they, they actually don't even know what it means. They don't even, they've never had that experience. They've been told potentially, right, you're, you're not a science or math person, and, and we have those messages that we have in community or in schools, and so Uh, Computer science has been a way in which we've committed exposure to um, computer science from kindergarten to 12th grade, but we're building that out through the public school system. That's incredible. Um, The other thing that I wanted to touch on was that there are roughly about 180,000 students currently in the DOE. At least uh, the 2018 poll had had that number. Correct. Um, So... From your perspective, that that 50,000-foot view so high up, how do you create and implement these kinds of programs, these large-reaching, far-reaching programs on such a large scale and then then measure that impact? So we have a a new strategic plan we're we're rolling out right now. It's a 10-year vision around how to create this kind of sandbox for innovation where we empower our school principals and teachers at the school level to really innovate and to have the resources to do that and not try to manage from uh, the state level down through the schools. Uh, We know that we're not trying to create schools that all look the same. There are many great models, so allowing school principals principles to work with their communities to innovate and to engage student voice in terms of how and where they want to learn and what they want to learn and using that as a way of designing schools and empowering schools. Sounds a lot different than the type of structure that I grew up with. It's a even. huge change. Yeah. <laughs> I want to shift gears to Lila. Oh, Antipua, please. I want to add to that. Um, there is... Okay, how many of you know what the model of the state of Hawaii is? Say it now. Okay. In Hawaiian pono, this level, it means to behave with right intentions. 
When you do that, what you create, the next level down, is you create justice and fairness and equality. But in the Hawaiian way of thinking, just as you said, equality and justice, if you think about the seesaw and the fulcrum, if I'm sitting on the seesaw, the bugger going down on this side. And in order for it to balance, I've got to have somebody who can be more than me. So as you say, to make equal is not two for you and two for me. It's two for me and 12 for you in order for there to be balance. We cannot just calculate just even Stephen, and that makes us even. But I also want to remind us that the, the deepest layer of pono means hope. A lot of my practice is around helping people articulate where hope lies for them. So when I work with people, I ask them, where does the hope lie for that child? Can he tell you where hope lies? Can he show you where it lies? And where does it lie for that family and that community and that neighborhood? And until we can get to that place of hope, doing trauma-informed care is not enough. It leaves you in the place of uwe vale no. Pity me, I'm broken, I cannot heal. But unless you can go to the place where hope lies and begin to build platforms of hope, we cannot readdress the issue of inequality. So where does hope lie? And I'm sorry, I'm going to take this one more minute just to tell you one more thing, which goes to your what you were saying about uh, meditation. My one of my Roshi, my my one of my biggest teacher was Roshi Tanoi, um, and he was my Zen master. Before he died, he rode into the dojo a big log and a big rock. And then he asked us, the priest sitting there, he says, what does the artist do? And so one of the priests raised his hand and said, carve something beautiful. And so he said, no. All the artist does is take away rubbish because the beauty is already in that rock and it's in that wood. And then what the artist does is he removes the rubbish so that we can see the beauty. And he says, that's what we do as priests. We take away rubbish so every person can see their own beauty and their own strength. And I think that's what teachers do. When they do their work with so much hope, they take away rubbish so that kid can see his strength and his beauty and create a, a society for all of us. So I truly admire you. You are very poetic. I need you to in my school saying that. <laughs> Thank you, Auntie Pua. Um, I wanted to just quickly shift gears to Layla um, since we're almost uh, three quarters of the way through. And I wanted to blitz through some of the stuff that we got to cover, um, our, sh- our student participants. So you are the founder of Integrate Do Not Isolate. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What um, is the initiative? And then what, what problem are you, or issues are you looking to address with that? Um, Okay, so a little bit of just kind of background about it. Um, My initiative is basically it started out as a Facebook or an an Instagram page where 
I don't know. I just felt that um, in Egypt, as a developing country, there's a lot of issues. So it's really not hard to find one that you're kind of really passionate about. But something to me that stands out is kind of the forgotten underprivileged. And um, in e- Egyptian society, that would be people like the deaf kids or you know what we call the so-called street girls. And to me, it was really important to kind of educate first my community and just people in general about these underprivileged um, communities because no one really knew um, anything about them and so I kind of started out by just posting like videos and articles and photos and any kind of like word vomit that came to mouth like anything I just felt or I had to say I would just post it just to create a conversation because I think starting dialogue about these problems is honestly the first and most important way to kind of deal with them and then after that I felt like um I kind of needed to do some, I really wanted to do some hands-on work, so I started kind of working with the non-profit um, sector in Helen O'Grady, which is a drama academy, and um, basically what I did was I decided that um, I kind of wanted to, uh, I attended camps as a child, and I wanted to, for these girls, I kind of planned these camps that would teach them soccer, and I coached them in tennis, and arts and crafts, and skill building, and like team building exercises and just um, fun games and um, really the aim of this was to kind of build their stimulate their confidence and creativity and um, kind of just reintegrate them back into a society that had forgotten about them and um, I put on like multiple plays with the deaf kids which was I was taking what I learned from um, all my previous camps just like fun we did drama plays and performances and after that I felt that I kind of wanted to make my initiative a little bit bigger and so I was kind of looking to host an event a conference anything I didn't have anything specific in mind but then um Wasfia was um talking at my school in Singapore and I thought that with her story I just was so inspired and honestly um that's when I knew that I had to bring her home back to Egypt, back to my girls, back to these deaf kids, and I had to I had to let them hear her story and have them be just as inspired as I was by her because um, they honestly, there was no one more deserving to hear of her story. And so, yeah, that's kind of um, where I'm at at this point in life right now. <laughs> so if, <laughs> what if people want to follow your journey, um, I mean, you're going next, uh, starting in the fall, you're going to be attending um, Tufts University uh, yeah. in the East Coast. So if, uh, for the Integrate Do Not Isolate, if people would like to follow your journey mm-hmm. and see what the page is about, you're on Facebook and Instagram. Mm-hmm. That's right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Integrate Do Not Isolate. Okay. Um, so now I'd like to just throw out, out something to all of you um, that I've certainly witnessed in my uh, short career um, and would imagine that all of you might have encountered at some point. Um, how do you get people to take you seriously? Um, we often talk about ageism as a thing about old people, like where um, maybe the job, you're, you're not fit for the job anymore and then you would like to cut that, that position or that person. Um, but often I've, I've seen and witnessed uh, as a young person even, um, it's hard to, to really insert yourself into the conversation, get yourself to be heard at the table when you look or are so young. Um, so Waspia, can you start, try, try to tackle that question? Wait, if I look young or if I'm a woman? So when I was, for example, when I was doing Seven Summits, nobody took me seriously because they didn't believe in me. And so when I was going to CEOs, 
these are educated people, mind you. They would often even talk via another person while I'm like sitting in the room straight. So over time, after being insulted for a long time, I just put my foot down and, um, for example, equal pay is something that I had to fight for in Bangladesh. The only other competitive sports is cricket, which is, which I don't think anyone plays here, right? But uh, it's huge in Bangladesh, like millions, like people kill each other. So I was always compared with the cricketers and I wanted equal pay as the captains got paid. And they just told me that we were not in a place where women can be paid equally. So I've had to rough it out. You know, if I had to live in couches and not take even the money that they were offering, I just didn't. And then three years down the line, when all these international credits came in, they're the ones, the CEO called me up and I said, hey, remember three years ago when this incident happened with your company when you refused to pay? So I need, to, need you to make up for it. So I ended up walking away with three times uh, more than what the cricketers are getting paid. And then I went home and I calculated, oh, dude, the tax on this is going to be huge. So I had to call in and say, can you include the tax too? So that's how, you know, I, but you got to rough it out till, you know, they meet you at your level. Right. Um, Christina, do you have any thoughts yeah, on I that? I think growing up um, in the era I grew up in uh, where I was uh, watching lots of uh, dropouts and, and, and families struggling or young people struggling to stay in school from a very young age I knew that um, and watching this discrimination against Hispanics um, in my community and and you still see it right in the nation today uh, you know we're still having border issues with Mexico but you know they could have been part of California right Um, so you know I knew that I needed to go through and get my degrees uh, to at least have a foot in the door. Um, and for me personally, that was my journey, right? It was get through schools, get your master's, get my, my doctorate. Um, uh, my passion was policy, voice, and equity, and so, you know, that's what I used. But now, as I was able to then get my foot through the door, was bringing other people through the door. So it's not just about um, being heard myself, but making sure that other people are heard. And when you're heard as a group and you have other people with you that you're giving opportunity for voice, uh, then there's that power and that collective around really um, working together to bring about those kind of changes. And Tupua, do you have anything to add? How did you get people to take you seriously? You got to take yourself seriously. You, you have to take yourself seriously. I think it starts there, and um, and I think I think you also have to leave yourself open to being wrong, and not knock yourself over the head when you took the wrong step, you made a misstep, you say sorry. You go back and you try to you try to undo the harm that you've done, but you know you you have to take whatever you do seriously, both the good things and the mistakes. And if you can do that, I think a lot of your life will be really worth living. Um, oh, um, I'm still only 18 years old, so. <laughs> 
Um, a lot of people don't tend to take me seriously as I also look like I'm about five years younger than that. So I think at least what I've learned from my grandmothers and my mom is that if you want people to take you seriously, you have to respect yourself, but you also have to respect them. If you don't show people respect first, they're not going to respect you. And another thing that I've just learned is that taking ownership, that's the only way people are really going to take you seriously is, like you said, if you make a mistake, you own up to it, you move on. And I just think that I'm hoping that with the skills that I've learned and hearing all you guys talk today about how people have taken you seriously, that when I when it's time for me to really need to, <laughs> to be taken seriously, that I can apply them. But yeah, I guess... Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so we're getting very close towards the end, and I wanted to leave enough time for the audience to ask any questions for our panelists. Um, let's go with a quick uh, blitz right down the line. One piece of advice for the audience, uh, especially the women in the audience, particularly the young women who will probably be leading Hawaii in the next 10 to 15 years. Figure out what is your gift, not what you're good at, but what you're gifted at. Always find where your hope lies and be able to build upon those two things, your gift and your hope. Uh, uh, Dr. Dr. Christina Kishimoto? So I will say that, um, uh, you know, uh, build each other up. You know, women, women bringing community together as women. Um, uh, you know, look to your left, look to your right as peers and support one another, uh, but also support the next generation of young ladies coming through to provide access. Um, you know, in my position, I'm in a position of where I can hire, right? And so I pay very close attention to the access I'm providing um, to that next generation and to, to my peers to be able to, so that they can be successful, we can collectively be successful. Uh, and uh, yeah, surround yourself with really smart people who think very differently from you. Um, that's the, the strength of, that I love about my, my team is they're all different from one another uh, and they're all very different from me, so they push me as a, uh, as a, as a leader um, to think about those different perspectives. Waspia, do you have anything to add? I think they've nailed it. I would just say one more line that I think... Uh, as women, it's, you know, because we're just generally nurturers and it's very easy to get caught up when, you know, in our, inside the box to think that there is no support system. At least for me, that had happened and with many of the women. But in this island, just know that, you know, there's a women are there for each other, not just in Hawaii, but there's a whole network and we have access to that network, like especially in this time where you can get connected across the world, just reach out and you're not alone. And it's very like sound advice that to build communities and have that support who lift each other up and men too, right? Who support each other. Um, thank you. I think I will have Alexis come on stage to uh, just do the quick Q&A. Does anyone in the audience have questions? Uh, you have a question? Um, could you just speak loudly and clearly? So the call, like, what was calling you on my mountains? Yeah, so it was a lot of stories in 45 minutes that I had to share. So that is one part that I missed is, like, so when I worked with the Tibetan refugees, I was based in the Himalayas 
for almost seven years. And usually, so there can be climbers and super performing athletes who can't necessarily deal with altitude, but just by default, I ended up in the Himalayas and fell in love with the Himalayas. And once you fall in love with the Himalayas, you're basically doomed for life. There is no way out. So I had learned mountaineering during those days through my colleagues. And so then fast forward, and that was something I did over weekends. I lived with the Sherpa people, you know, it just happened, right? But usually if you follow any other climber or mountaineer, they start somewhere else and Himalayas their end game. But I was very lucky that that's how it came in my early 20s. So when, like I said, I was born in water region and the water, and I also, the last time I was in Hawaii, that was 12 years ago, I went and jumped and swam with sharks. Like water is, I'm, I'm a water person, but water doesn't call me as much as mountains do because in mountains, I, it's a real spiritual journey for me. And it brought, that's what brought me healing. So when I was trying to put together this campaign to voice the women's struggle, it was very parallel to the struggle that women were going through on the ground. We have to climb so many mountains on a daily level. So it was a great, uh, how do you say, like, like that's why so many women from the country could relate to it as well as men who were in the journey is that the physical journey that I was doing translated to the, them the, you know, the social journey the social climbing that they had to do. Not social climbing, that's not the right word, but you know, like, yeah. So, and also figuratively, like, taking, the other intention was taking Bangladesh to, in a world platform, and I knew climbing, and that's what I was good at, so. I was confident at, so that's how it came. Mahalo. Um, you're all incredible people, women, and, and you give us courage, and I've been uh, thinking and talking with other women this week about um, courage and how these are times requiring great courage in all forms, and you, you've all summited, um, either metaphorically or physically, um, exceedingly high peaks. I want to know, um, as you inspire us, you know, how do you find courage, each of you, um, in your own ways to move forward uh, when things are really difficult and, and uncomfortable and terrifying. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear your advice on that. I would definitely say I draw on the personal stories of my being raised by a mother who had to be very strong um, and, um, uh, and watching her navigate the world around her you know she got she got married um, uh, and didn't finish high school had five children uh, and uh, my mother my older brother and I ended up going to college at the same time we we said we're all gonna go to college which means she got her GED she got her uh, bachelor's degree she ended up getting two masters and she ended up teaching um, and, and when she went into teaching, uh, she went into special education um, and also ended up um, teaching in English language learners. Uh, and um, just watching her, um, her passion trail that she went through and constantly telling us. Um, and I'll share a quick story. It was a time in the, we, were, we were about to lose our apartment, uh, Section 8 housing, uh, in the projects in New York City. 
and she sent my father with me as a translator to the to the housing office to sign a form asking for um, extra time to come up with the rent and the the person there um, treated my father in a very very bad way um, and so we walked back and it was very sh- I watched how shameful that was for him and my mother said wait here and she dragged me back to the office and she basically kicked down that door and she said I'm poor but I'm not ignorant and I'm not stupid and I know my rights and she I mean before you knew it they had her in the back office they were giving her whatever she wanted and she you know when we came back she she said you know no one would disrespect my family and so I watched her navigate uh, these spaces that were um, unfamiliar, right, having come from Puerto Rico into New York City and raising kids in, in poverty and through very hard times um, while learning English, while, you know, and so forth. Um, and going into a culture that was just different um, but demanding respect as for no other reason than because she's a human being. Um, and that's what I learned from her. And that's, I always think back to those kind of stories. And that gives me incredible strength um, when I go into, into spaces that are hard. We have a couple more um, time. We have time for a couple more um, questions. Does anyone have any uh, any more questions? They'll Curious. Um, what are your hobbies in general? Just what do you like to do in your free time? <laughs> I, if I get any free time, I fly planes. Yeah, but I haven't gotten any free time, and I'm just learning <laughs> self care in the last two years. Uh, so, which is because uh, I'm a workaholic, so you don't. I'm just programmed to work, even and I work across the world. So Bangladesh time, and so it's very hard for me to just take care of myself. But I had to hit a rock bottom to realize that if I don't take care of myself, so even reading books is uh, downtime for me. And I'm just I'm still learning to take care of that part of myself. And if I get a longer period, then I go out and go take the plane and fly because and, I have to get my miles in. She goes, flies planes, I go get a massage. Okay? That, that's the truth. No, I, I'm very collected. I like to bike and read and just hang out. Uh, I like to listen to music. I like to put earplugs in and do nothing. I mean, you know, so it's, it's all kinds of random things, which I think is fun to do. I like to play tennis in my free time <laughs> just because I think um, it being an individual sport and everything, it really kind of allows me to be mindful when I'm kind of out there alone and it's one of the few times in kind of the day when I am so I just kind of enjoy playing a sport um, just because I think it's really fun and I don't know it just makes me feel really happy I guess Antipua, any hobbies? Free time. <laughs> Free time is a hobby. What is that? I tell you what I do like to do. I like to be very quiet. I like to be silent. I like to, and it's not withdrawing. I just like to be, I like to enjoy the silence when I can appreciate it and, and turn this thing off. Thank you. <laughs> I also write. <laughs> <laughs> 
Have a round of applause for this wonderful panel. Thank you, folks. And thank you all for coming. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for listening to us on Native Stories. Navigate through location-based stories on our Native Stories mobile app. You can find it on Apple and Android stores under Native Stories. Go check them out and leave a review and tell your family and friends. If you have a story you would like us to tell or want to sponsor a future podcast, location story, or walking tour, please email us at info at nativestories.org. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook under username Our Native Stories.